Hi, I'm Michaela McGuirk-Scalaro and you're listening to City Road. The 2022 Festival of Urbanism has provided us with some fantastic panel discussions on the threats and opportunities facing our cities. Digital technologies, artificial intelligence, co-creation and multi-locational work sites are creating new spaces for work and encouraging the merging of work and non-work spaces like never before. This episode explores the impact of the post-work condition on how we work in the city. In this panel, we hear from Dr. Jim Stanford, economist and director of the Centre for Future Work, Charlotte Lockhart, founder of the four-day week global campaign, and Jason Lindsay, the founding partner of the successful Petri Dish shared office space. This panel also includes Professor Catherine McKinnon, the director of the Centre for Sustainable Communities at the University of Canberra, and Marcus Spiller, the founding partner at SGS Economics and Planning. This panel is co-chaired by Ash Alam and Professor Etienne Nell. I'll let Ash introduce himself. Kia ora. Now my hairimai tenakotu katoa. I'm Ash Alam and I'll be moderating this session with my colleague Professor Etienne Nell from the beautiful University of Otago, New Zealand. And before we proceed, I would like to acknowledge the indigenous presence and sovereignty on the land I am standing now and all those lands we are connecting through this webinar. Welcome to the Festival of uh, Future Urbanism. Our today's session is titled, The Future of Work, Should We Plan for the Post-Work City? This session is being sponsored by Australasian Cities Research Network, ACRN. I'm a committee member of ACRN from the New Zealand side. And for those, for those new to ACRN, the Australasian Cities Research Network was initially known as the Australian Sustainable Cities and Regions Network when it was first established in the early 2000s. And the network's fundamental aim is to promote, foster, champion, and disseminate research that is relevant to Australian cities and Australasian cities and regions. And I'm sure many of you also know about the State of Australasian Cities SWAC conference, which takes place once in every two years, and that is hosted by different local universities across Australasia. So ACRN also sponsors uh, such an important event. And today, ACRN is pleased to offer this cutting edge topic on the post-war city, which has been even more important as we move into the post-2020 pandemic ridden world. Obviously, technology enabled us to perform works in places that are traditionally non-work sites, such as local cafes, home, uh, airport lobbies, and this is called flexibility, right? But I mean, at some point or at a different angle, it may seem empowering for many, but also it raises lots of questions around who got unequal access to internet or housing infrastructures. Uh, there are issues related to gender division of labor at home and workplace, and obviously how we perceive work, because the very concept of work is uh, also being very fluid and multispatial. But more importantly, it raises questions for the urban thinkers and practitioners, how future cities should be organized, what kind of urban infrastructures can support the post-war societies to stay productive, inclusive, and maintain well-being. So we'll touch on some of these interesting issues in the next 80 minutes or so. 
now I'm inviting my colleague, Professor Etienne Nell, to introduce himself and invite our five awesome speakers. Right. Thank you very much for that, Ash. And um, my background is in economic and urban geography, and I have a particular interest in employment issues and the way in which uh, complexities in the world reshape the way in which the economy sustains itself and functions. I think just to endorse what Ash has been saying, in the last 50 years, we've seen dramatic changes globally in everything from the processes of globalization to the nature of work and how, as a result of a series of disruptors, the things we engage in are changing. And it's within that context that work itself is altering, altering between the in the divide between those who are in full-time traditional employment and, shall we say, the precariat as well, whose, whose position has altered dramatically. And in some ways, what we are seeing in a shift in the workplace parallel shifts at a broader level in terms of growing social and economic inequality globally. And in parallel with this as well, and this brings in the side of the city, the built form of the city itself is changing. Historic functions are altering. Where different activities take place is changing. And class divides are often being reinforced. It's in with this context that this panel session has been devised to draw on the insights and expertise of five international experts in the field of work, workplaces, productivity, well-being, care, the economy, and housing issues. We have asked the five speakers to broadly discuss the topic of, and I'll read it now, what post-work means and what the implications are of how we work in, move through, and engage in the city. The five speakers come from very different backgrounds and no doubt will share different experiences and insights with us. Um, first of all, I'd be pleased to, to ask Dr. Jim Stanford to speak to us. Etienne, thank you very much. And thank you, Ash, and all the others for pulling together this very interesting uh, panel. I'm really, really honored to be part of it. Uh, and I'm coming to you from the traditional uh, unceded territory of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation uh, here in Melbourne, Australia. Um, so uh, what is a post-work city? That is an interesting question and a provocative question, and uh, obviously uh, deliberately so. And uh, the reality is there's no such thing as a post-work city, and there's no such thing as a post-work economy. Uh, there's no possibility of uh, a world without work. And uh, this is a funny thing for, for someone who studies the future of work, which is what our center is called, uh, to say that, 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 well, I guess work does have a future. And in fact, the future of work probably looks a lot like the past of work, uh, namely human beings uh, who get up in the morning and uh, then engage their brains and their brawn uh, to conduct pr productive activity, uh, broadly defined our brains to think and conceptualize and communicate and solve problems, and our brawn, our capacity to perform physical labor and move uh, objects. And since the uh, human race began 200,000 years ago, somewhere in East Africa, uh, we've had to work uh, because it is the only force that adds value uh, to the materials that we harvest uh, from nature. And hopefully we learn to harvest those materials more sustainably. But uh, the reality is, uh, work is the engine that uh, allows us to survive and thrive. It transforms what we gather from the natural environment into goods and services that we use uh, in our day-to-day -day lives, uh, both the necessities of life, but more than just subsistence. We also want 
um, the good things in life. We want education, we want culture, we want recreation, and we want care. So, um, so much of the jargon about the future of work, about humans being replaced by robots and artificial intelligence taking over is nonsense. Frankly, it's nonsense in uh, economic terms. And it's usually, I think, um, uh, quite uh, negative in terms of its ideological implications. This idea that we're somehow vulnerable to being replaced by machines, I think, uh, undermines the uh, confidence and capacity of the people who actually do the work uh, to make demands on the system and to require and, and ask for and fight for uh, better respect and protection for the work uh, that they do. Uh, so work is still going to uh, be the essential ingredient in economic and social life. There's no doubt about that. Now work is going to change, including in, in cities. Cities are a unique environment for work. Uh, they're uh, centralized and specialized communities. And they are less resource intensive in the mode of production than is the case in rural and regional areas and more knowledge intensive. Uh, but it is absolutely uh, still work. And while technology is changing, of course, uh, technology is not doing away with work uh, in some ways. And technology that we have experienced is more about the relationships of work and employment than it is about the actual production process itself. A great example of that is the uh, so-called gig economy, uh, where you see somebody uh, working, riding a bicycle around delivering food uh, to somebody who's rich enough to pay not just for the food to be cooked, but to have it delivered to their door. Uh, here's a shocking fact. The bicycle was invented in 1860. There's nothing new about the bicycle. Uh, the only thing that's new there is the use of a, a, a digital platform to coordinate this work in a way that is um, very uh, insecure and poorly paid and demeaning for the person riding uh, the bike. So. Uh, cities, I think, are going to face lots of challenges in how work is uh, changing. Cities are getting bigger. There's no doubt about that. They're uh, the, the most dominant engine of um, job creation in our uh, societies. That's going to require evolution in the transportation and housing and built environment in cities to ensure that density is um, and high quality and sustainable. Uh, the sectoral makeup of uh, work and production in cities is uh, is changing in different ways. On the one hand, you have very specialized uh, high value services uh, occupations both in the private sector and the public sector but then you also have a whole swack of uh, private services work uh, that tends to be uh, very low wage and insecure so there's a bit of a polarization in the sectoral composition of work in cities but also in economic and social conditions that goes with it i'm sure we'll get to talk at the end about the whole work from home phenomenon during the uh, pandemic and uh, zooms and all that sort of stuff i think there's uh, a lot to talk about there, but even there, I don't see a fundamental shift uh, in both the nature of work, the essential role that work plays in sustaining our communities, and the importance for us as social scientists to focus on the relationships and the power balances and the power imbalances that determine what work looks like and how it's experienced. So I'll leave it at that, Etienne. Thank you again. Fantastic. Thank you, Jim. We're off to a great start. And thank you for contextualizing the, the topic of this evening's discussion so clearly in terms of a range of debates, both urban and related to the, the changing or the potential constancy in, in relation to what work means and its, and its future. With those words, I'd like to now call on Charlotte. Charlotte Lockhart as the second speaker to please address us. Thank you very much for right. having me on.
the this panel and a very very interesting conversation. Jim makes some some um, excellent points about the importance of work in our in our lives. In fact, um, some research came out of. Cambridge University prior to the pandemic uh, with Dr. Brendan Birchall <clears throat> around the fact that um, for us to be happy, we actually need work in our lives. So even though um, in my world, we talk about reducing the amount of time we spend in work, we are certainly not undervaluing the, you know, how important work is to, um, to ourselves and to our economy. And I think that this is a really interesting point. Um, people often think that what I'm talking about is, you know, a four-day week is just, you know, people trying to be workless. It's actually about uh, we, we really focus on on people being able to work efficiently and and well. And the four-day week fits in with the flexible and remote working that we are doing. Um, we deal with businesses with our pilot program all over the world and they're they are grappling with this issue around what their cities are going to look like in the future i myself this year have been to seven different cities outside of um new zealand and australia uh, europe and you know seeing the the differences in in real life is quite interesting um because what we are finding is that there is a shift to how we work but as a society, what we want to look at is, you know, what, what are the benefits that we can get out of the way that work has, has changed? Um, and, you know, we've had all these people impacted out. We've had this incredible impact and people have lost their lives um, over the pandemic. And I think it, it's, it's really important for us as in a society and, and as, as leaders to really be looking at what are the lessons we learned and how can we improve the way that we work so that we create a society that is better now on the business side of things we are talking about how how businesses can be more productive and that's jim referred to the mechanization and ai and things like that and yes i'm, I'm definitely in, in the camp that there's some of that um and then there is the then there is the what is what are the benefits that come to our society by reducing the amount of time we work, we actually balance our society better. We allow more space for those who cannot engage in a, you know, a, 30, a 35, 40 hour work week. Um, and that assists with gender and it assists with abilities, with people who have different abilities to engage in what we define as full-time work. And so what we're really talking about is what is the, you know, with with the cities that we that we have, what is the society that we're shaping with them? So, and what what are the cities' function in terms of that new society that we're looking for? We want a society where our our children have time to be people and and you know people people often say to me, oh, the young ones these days they just don't want to work hard, and I'm like, well, good, because they've watched. Every single one of us burn out. They're the ones that have been brought up in after school care. They're the ones that have had all of the negative effects of the overwork that uh, we've that we've experienced through the, the late 80s, 90s and, 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 the, and the millennium. Um, the 21st century should represent for us a way in which we can have a productive and economic society, but we can put ourselves back into our communities. And then redefining what is the meaningful work that we are doing. 
So therefore, we have the amount that is in terms of uh, generating an, an income and, 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 and our economy, but then what is the work that we're doing in our communities? We look at the demise of organisations like Rotary, where, you know, I don't have time for that. But look what Rotary did in, in our history and our society. I'm just using Rotary as an example. They cured polio. So without us having the time to be part of um, community and civic duties, without us having the time to be part of our communities uh, and our families and take responsibility for our health, Jim made a, a reference to Uber Eats there uh, or Deliveroo or those, 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 I would be very happy if all of those went out of business because we have time to prepare meals for ourselves. Because one of the things that we have is an obesity epidemic. Our obesity epidemic is because we are busy buying food from <laughs> and we're not preparing the food in its raw. We're not um, growing our vegetables anymore. We're not cooking for ourselves anymore. And all of those skills are being lost. And all of that time that we spend together as a family in those preparing things for our lives outside of our work uh, being um, uh, changed through to computer games and being on the internet and all the things that separate ourselves from our society. So I think for me, the, you know, the future of our cities needs to be led by the future of our, our economic um, requirements and the society that we want to create. So I'll leave you with this. As business leaders, we need to remember that we borrow our people from their lives. Fantastic, Charlotte. Thank you for that. And thank you for uh, raising points which no doubt cause us all to self-reflect on our own work styles and our own work habits, but nonetheless, the things which are really important in, in wider society and, and in community. Thank you. We're now going to go on to our third speaker, and our third speaker is Jason Lindsay. Uh, you know, they say if you're uh, the smartest guy in a room that you're probably in the wrong room. And uh, I would imagine that I'm in pretty uh, safe company here that that's not the case for me, but um, it's usually not the case ever. So <laughs> uh, anyway, I, uh, I founded a company uh, in 2016 called Petri Dish, which is a shared office space. It turned out to be a uh, probably not the best name to have named my company uh, in retrospect uh, over the last few years. One thing we've learned a lot about it, uh, about business and about the future of business, uh, running the space. Uh, it is an opportunity to see we have about 70 businesses in our building at, at the moment, and it's an opportunity to see a real diversity of types of businesses, uh, businesses at what stages they're in, and uh, the diversity of age of uh, business founders, all, all those things. And, and we, we uh, get to learn a lot about how different people work. Uh, and so I suppose that's where hopefully I'll be able to um, add some value to this discussion. I do know thinking a lot about uh, post work and, and having, uh, having had to look up a little bit about it in the last few days to really understand the concepts of what people are talking about when talking about post-work. I think the one thing that will never go away is our uh, desire for community. And we see that 
especially coming out of out of the lockdowns that we've had, that um, we've been huge beneficiaries of the lockdowns because I think the isolation uh, really affected people and that's uh, created a real boom in our industry. I know it's not just us, but other co-working spaces around the world have seen uh, quite a boom and, and a bit of uptake in it. And I think the other thing that, uh, you know, there are, are human uh, characteristics that will never change. And I think, uh, you know, one thing that we see in younger tenants that we have that are in their late 20s and early 30s is they have young children and it's difficult to work around young children. Uh, and they would like to be in the space. I think, you know, as you get older or, or looking for more meaningful relationships, and that's a big part of how you uh, seek out a fulfillment in your work. Sometimes we we don't all have the most fulfilling jobs, but you look for those relationships in your work to uh, create fulfillment. And uh, I think all these things are probably what will um, be consistent in the future with, uh, especially in our industry. But uh, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Mm. Thank you very much, Jason, and certainly, drawing our attention to the way in which the use of space is altering the importance of community relationships, uh, which we have with others around us in our workplace, and the nature of co-working space helps, helps ground us in thinking which has to be center stage in how we plan for the future. So, so thank you, Jason. Um, I'd now like to call on our fourth speaker, and our fourth speaker is Catherine McKinnon. So thank you, Catherine. Thanks very much, Etienne. Thank you for inviting me to come along. I'm, so I'm, I'm speaking from a very different perspective, but before I begin, I, I just want to acknowledge, um, I have the privilege today to be on Ngaitahu land, um, just arrived a couple of days ago in, um, in the South Island of New Zealand for a visit um, at Canterbury University. Um, but I also need to acknowledge the country that I live and work on. So I, I live on Jaburong country in central Victoria, but my institution of Canberra is located on Ngunnawal country. And I want to pay my respect and honour the traditional custodians of the land. But I also want to honour country. Um, I've been learning a great deal from my Indigenous colleagues in Canberra about how important that is to acknowledge how country provides for us, how country cares for us. And in fact, in the context of this talk, it is also important to acknowledge that that care and that providing for is a form of work that country does for us. Um, so I want to acknowledge that as a really important foundation and, and signals to you all, I think a little bit that I'm bringing in a slightly different perspective on what work is and also what post-work might mean. So when we talk about a post-work city, I agree work in, in terms of what you've all been talking about is it's never going to go away. But I think what we're looking for, what I'm looking for in this is not so much a society in which we move past work as such, but um, a moving past work society. That is a society in which this narrow definition of what work is as paid employment, the only thing that matters. I think post work, I really like the definition from Donaldson and Kimlicker who talk about this as a move to a denormalization and de-sanctification of paid employment. So much of the discourse that we encounter is this real valorization of work and employment as if it's the only thing that matters, the only reason we educate our children, the only thing that makes for a meaningful or productive life in our contemporary society. 
So for me, post-work is really about recognising the damage of that valorization of paid employment as the only thing um, and um, decentering of the productivist bias, as James Ferguson calls it. In a post-work society, paid employment wouldn't be the only way you get citizenship. We wouldn't be punished or isolated or stigmatised for not having paid employment, which is what happens now. Enormous mental health consequences for so many people. Our education system wouldn't be exclusively targeted to producing a work-ready population, which all of us educators just struggle with, I think. And, you know, that idea that full-time, lifelong paid employment um, can be moved aside as the only way that we can contribute meaningfully to society. Now, when I say that, I know everyone's thinking, well, of course, it's not the only meaningful thing that we do. But the thing is, the dominant discourse definitely pose it that way. So in Australia, in the last couple of weeks with the Job Summit, it was all about that. And it was all about how can we make our workers more productive, which really means how can we make them do more and work harder? You know, and that's that's just to me, just doubling down on the damage that we already see um, resulting from the contemporary society that we live in. The injustices and brutality of this sort of work-focused society that we live in are really well documented. Chronic overwork, chronic marginalisation and poverty, um, devastating impacts on health and well-being, and environmentally catastrophic patterns of production and consumption. So this is what I want to get rid of when I'm looking towards what a post-work society might be. For me, what it means is that we think about the value not just of that kind of paid employment, but all the different kinds of work that we do. And it means that maybe we can create conditions where a different way of being can come to the fore. So this is the image that I wanted to show, and it just it gives a, a snapshot of what I'm talking about with these ideas of work. So it's the idea of an iceberg to represent this. On, on the surface, above the waterline, what we see as being the important parts of the economy is wage labor, commodity markets, capitalist enterprises. But of course, when you look a bit closer, our livelihoods are made up of a whole lot more that's below the waterline. And here is where all that feminized work of care sits, all that unpaid labor in the home, and the work that we recognize under the waterline isn't just the work that's done by humans, but it's the work done by animals, by bacteria, by objects. These are also really crucial actors in our economy. They're crucial actors to support and maintain our livelihoods. This diverse economy is a picture of what our economy looks like now. And the move to post-work for me is really a move on the lens we put on work that acknowledges not just the above the waterline formalized wage um, labor but everything else that is so important for securing our social cultural emotional and spiritual needs work in a diverse economy includes all the things that people do to support our livelihoods and it builds on the recognition um, in that quote there from gibson graham that more hours of labor over the life course are spent outside of the wage labor um, market in non-capitalist activity. These are the things that really matter and make our life and livelihoods possible. And I think, you know, the legacy of this is really in many ways part of the legacy of a patriarchal society that we live in, in which feminized work is devalued. It's paid less when it's paid or it's just not paid at all. 
when it's done in the home. Um, you know, I think about the fact I've got teenagers now and anyone with teenage children, anyone connected with this sort of sudden shift in gender relations in our society um, has got to think how irrelevant these old divisions of what counts around what is masculine and what is feminine labor in the world. Surely it's time to move beyond these divisions and think about what really matters. So for me, when I look forward to post-work, and I'll just flash up this last image and then stop talking, it's a way of thinking about what supports our livelihoods isn't just that narrow little bit of work, but all the work that we do. And the work that we do is not just about making a living for ourselves, um, but it's what we do to make a living for others, and it's how we are made by others. Um, and this is the mesh of livelihood relations that was mapped out by Ethan Miller, of giving a sense of our interdependent livelihoods being so much more than just that narrow category of how we get a cash income. Great. Thank you so much, Catherine. Um, thank you for sharing that insight with us. And certainly what you've shared about how we understand work and the ways in which we need to have a much more comprehensive definition of what it involves is certainly enlightening. And, and for those of us who work in the global south, it certainly has a lot of resonance with the very stark realities many of the poorer countries in the world face in terms of what work means and how people quite literally have to survive in very extreme circumstances. So thank you for that, Catherine. We'll now go on to our fifth speaker, and our fifth speaker is Marcus Spiller. Over to you, Marcus, please. Thank you, Etienne, and hello, everybody. Um, I'm coming to you today also from Wurundjeri country, and I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. I'm focusing today on the urban aspects of the post-work city, and in particular, considering how the rise of flexible and remote work might affect the shape of the city, and in particular, the central city. We've all read about the high vacancy rates or the, or the low utilisation rates of um, central city offices, particularly in places like Melbourne that were very hard hit by the pandemic. And many have been writing obituaries for the old um, CBDs. I'd like to discuss what is the future for the central cities in this kind of environment. And in doing so, I found myself reaching back to what I regard as a seminal work in thinking about the nature of work. And that is Robert Reich's book of, well, 30 years ago now, called The Work of Nations. I think one of the first writers to anticipate the the, the rise of knowledge work and its wider social and economic and environmental implications. But uh, Reich's typology involved three types of workers, shall we say, paid workers, I, I hasten to add, the so-called symbolic analysts, uh, who would include uh, designers, brokers, engineers, advisors, consultants, lawyers, planners, uh, routine production workers, which at the time of uh, Reich's work would have included a lot of factory workers. Uh, we would also include today tradespeople and people working in, in freight and logistics. And then in-person service workers, people in hospitality, retail, health, and so forth. Uh, now, the, the shift to the so-called knowledge economy over the past uh, four years, uh, with the rise of neoliberalism and, and global integration, 
really saw a shift in favour, if you like, of the central city. It became a much more powerful element in the shape of our cities uh, because it was the central point at which enterprises could tap the deepest and broadest talent pool that uh, a metropolitan area could offer. And uh, symbolic analysts are hired for their specialist skills. So the central city had that command. For me to understand how a post-pandemic uh, city might operate, I think we need to think about the type of work within each of these types of workers and with a particular focus on the symbolic analysts, which have, as I say, um, dominated uh, within the central city. And we can contemplate their work also in, in four categories. Now, in this case, I've, I've dreamt these up uh, in thinking about today, but, uh, and perhaps we can all affiliate with these categories. Some of their work is transactional in nature. So that would be sales analysis, customer relationship management systems, payroll administration. So this is work that is routine in nature. Uh, we have output work, the actual production work of um, producing reports, designs or advice. There's innovative work, which could be set pieces, uh, including planning meetings and problem solving workshops, but it could also be uh, informal, spontaneous, happening in situ, uh, organically within a team environment. And some of the work is also culture building in nature, uh, literally team building exercises and informal interaction. Now, some things have been liberated from the office as a result of the rise of uh, flexible and remote working, but some things remain aspects of work which need to be transacted in an office environment. So in particular, in respect of symbolic analysts, the innovative aspects and the cultural aspects, I believe tether those jobs, uh, at least for a significant part of the time to an office environment. Now, for me, this means that corporations, large and small, will continue to require a certain proportion of their work to occur within an office. Um, however, that will need to be maintained or managed in a way which is flexible in respect of the workers that they want to attract and retain. So I expect that whilst office space will be used in a central city will be used uh, less intensively, uh, the demand for it will remain strong. And to postulate some possibilities in terms of what it means for our central cities, I anticipate that we would have more specialised and creatively focused CBDs so that transaction-based companies um, will no longer find, it, find the imperative to be located in the central city. They can decant to regional areas or to suburban areas, which is a good thing, but in so doing, uh, will uh, create opportunities for other business businesses to set up in the central city that can make use of the creative ecology that is offered in that space. I can imagine that the central city will, in response to this shift, offer still more specialised opportunities in hospitality and retail so that the role of the central city as a creative place becomes even stronger. And finally, um, I would expect that at long last, we will have less of a central business district and much more of a central neighbourhoods district so that the central city is a place not just to transact work, 
but a place to be creative and a place to enjoy um, as a place to live as well. So I think as speaking to the planning community now, we need to reimagine how we approach the central city and think of it um, as a series of living neighbourhoods where work happens to take place. So my overall feeling is one of optimism about the future of our central cities. Right. Thank you so much, Marcus, for sharing that insight with us. I'm sure you'll all agree we've had a fascinating set of five presentations which have, have variously explored what work is, what post-work is, how to variously understand diverse economies, how to factor in the broader context in which work takes place, but also um, Jason and Marcus have helped us focus on the places in which work occurs and how those might be, how people might be re-engaging with the physical aspects of where place, of place and, and work within place. So with, with those thoughts, I'm going to at this stage hand back to Ash to manage questions which have been received in the interim. Over to you, Ash. Thank you, Etienne. It's fascinating to see all these different vignettes from different perspectives. So we already started to receive some questions and I would request our participants, I mean the audience to throw some questions through the Q&A function. Obviously there has been an interesting questions around the CVD. I mean, Marcus was talking about the CVD and the C neighborhoods. Uh, this question comes as uh, there is often the narrative, especially from special interest that workers need to go back into the CBD areas to save the relevance of the city. And yet, I mean, decentralization has been happening for many years uh, through planning strategies. So do you think town planners and CBD special interests have been complacent to adapt and accept uh, social shifts, especially still forcing an outdated kind of narrative of work centralized in a CBD setting? So Ash, if that's a question to me, I was, I don't, I don't see it as a conspiracy or a, uh, an exercise in engineering a city that is contrary to the community interest. I am a little bit old school here and would say that um, all metropolises do have hierarchies of centres that certain functions which are more specialised and serve a wider catchment can only be in central places so you know your flagship cultural institutions your flagship uh, sporting institutions your flagship uh, hospitality and retail offers uh, need to be in central places because that off that's the most democratic place to be that's where most people can can reach them in terms of where work is transacted, I think the central city has to reinvent itself to make it more relevant in the way that paid work is transacted these days. So uh, there is no real reason for routine work to be conducted in the central city anymore. Um, you know, if, if, if all you're doing is routine work or that part of your job, which is routine, you can do that at home and it's a uh, it's a good thing for you, for your family and for the city, for the road network, for the public transport system, etc. But if to enrich your own working life and to make your contribution, you want to be part of an innovative process, you want to build a culture within your workplace or you want to sustain yourself and sustain it, then the central city, I think, has a big future 
um, not as part of the conspiracy, but as part of um, good planning. Thanks, Marcus. I would perhaps direct this question to Jim because, I mean, Jim, you obviously talked about uh, work has been platformized through artificial in the use of artificial intelligence and computerization. So what, what are your thoughts on, I mean, how might union activity be impacted by this kind of platformization or this kind of multi-sided phenomena? Well, um, the degradation of work through on-demand platforms and the so-called gig economy uh, certainly reaffirms the need for unionization. Uh, I think that um, you know the the value of unions and collective representation and collective bargaining in fighting to improve the conditions of those uh, jobs is uh, is pressing. And uh, in countries around the world, unions are trying to respond to that need by um, trying to organize uh, gig workers in different ways. In some cases, um, that involves a fight to change the formal employment status of the work that's being done. Uh, that is to sort of close off the loophole that Uber and the other platforms have, have artificially used to reclassify these workers as uh, alleged contractors or independent entrepreneurs rather than employees. And that allows Uber and, and the like to avoid um, normal obligations like a minimum wage or payments into social insurance programs and so on. So uh, in some cases, the, the workers are fighting to get uh, recognition of their employment status and some of those uh, fights have been successful. In other cases, it's a question of uh, using collective power to actually just negotiate better terms for the uh, contract or platform work. And that has a long tradition as well. It's a mistake to think unions only uh, represent employees. There's lots of uh, examples in history where uh, collective organization and collective bargaining by independent producers, uh, whether they were fishers or loggers or uh, truck drivers um, or home workers, um, you can still, even within the constraints of that status, use collective power to win better terms, like say the share of, uh, of income that an Uber driver gets to keep. So um, I think that there will be um, continuing efforts to uh, use the power of unionization and union organizing to improve the conditions of uh, gig and platform work. It's hard going because of the, uh, you know, the very mobile nature, the uh, fragmented nature uh, of the work and so on. Um, but on the other hand, there are, there are things that are working in the favor of those, uh, of those workers to be able to demand better conditions, including greater public awareness of how badly they are exploited. I see Charlotte has put her hands up. So Charlotte, uh, do you want to go with any comments that you have picked or questions from the thread? Mm. Oh, just, just, just want to sort of add into to what Jim was saying and possibly answer the Apple's multi-million dollar HQ question at the same time. So, so what we see in our work with Four Day Week, and, and the, the re, one that the primary reason why companies uh, come and join our program now is to be able to attract and retain the best staff. And that applies to the entire workforce, not just people who are looking to 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 come, you know, use the, the four day week as a solution. And so, it, this is a period of time when people are demanding, and I use the word, you know, advisedly, they're demanding the type of work that they want. And Apple is actually a really good example because in the middle of the year last year, Tim Cook 
said to his people, hey guys, look, we're gonna you know, go back to work and we're gonna just come back to work three days a week. And his people said no. Now they'd said no because he didn't consult them. If prior to the pandemic, he'd have said to them, hey guys, let's go back to, let's just work three days a week. People would have thought he was innovative and, and, and a God. But now, in, um, unlike other times that we've had in recent history, the workers are actually exercising a voice and they're exercising it with their feet. Now, that's uh, to some of Catherine's points, that's not universally ap applicable and not everyone has the negotiation skills, the, 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 the strength within their employment to actually exercise a voice. But I think it's really important that as, a, as employers and, and, and as a society, that we acknowledge that and use it because if the people who have the ability to have a voice use it, then they help and empower they help and empower those who don't have a voice. And it's really important that we we focus on that. So that's really sort of my, my point around, you know, how future work is looking around the globe. Thanks, Charlotte. So we might go back to Jason, perhaps, I mean, related to the question and comments around the CBG narrative. So Jason, because you have running this working space for quite some time now. So have you seen any kind of I mean, obviously, you have perhaps seen the uptake of working space, but how is it disrupting or in, I mean, impacting on the traditional CBD space in your particular context and also for the business community, perhaps? Well, I, I can only kind of speak from our personal experience, but, um, you know, Kate and I, we're also redeveloped heritage properties in the city. And we do know that uh, when we bought our first one that we put Petri dish in. It's about a 3,500 square meter building, which was on a side of town that no one thought we would ever find tenants for. And, uh, you know, we have it in our city, uh, uh, what's known as the Tart Mafia, which is kind of the old old money of the, uh, of the city. And uh, I, I've got friends who, you know, grew up in, in those circles and I've made comments to us that, that their friends' parents have kind of said they can't believe what we've been able to pull off on our side of town and 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 what a, a, a um you know a large surprise it was uh, but for us it wasn't a large surpri a surprise i think the more people that we consulted with in co-working the one of the the um, strategies that we kept hearing that was seemed to be very successful was that people did go to these uh, uh, less populated sides of town or more rundown sides of town. And somehow demand for these spaces was so good that you, you could put these spaces in a part of town that no one wants to be in, and it was still dry, driving people to those sides of town. And then what happens with it is that it converts that side of town uh, we've seen apartments on our side of town uh, go for, you know, some that they're within blocks of us go for some of the um, highest selling apartments, uh, highest, you know, highest priced apartments selling, which people would have never believed uh, uh, seven or eight years ago before we opened our space. So we, we see a conversion of, of what it does within the um, city. It's, it's quite fascinating that, um, that it has as much impact as it does. It, it's a it's a really, I mean, it, as long as we've been in it, 
there's been a lot of speculation on my part of what why I think that it works so well. It always does go back to community and human connection. And I have my theories on, on why the co-working space boomed all at once when really you would think that it would have naturally have happened a decade ago, not a decade ago, a century ago. I mean, the, these type of spaces are not uh, unique to uh, single contractors needing a space to work. And it, it's, I think it has a lot to do with that we got away from uh, a lot of quality human connection when we got into our social medias. We started kind of saying, hey, uh, we think we're getting, a, a, we think we're connecting with people, but it's not a fulfilling connection. And I think that that's kind of what's happened. I don't know if that really answers the question or if I got wildly off track, but that that's where I'll leave that answer. Great, Thanks. thank you for that. Um, I'd like to take another one of the questions which has come on on the Q&A feed, uh, if, if that's all right with, with the speakers. To what degree will the future of work be impact, impacted by climate change? Uh, would anyone like to try and respond to that in terms of, the, of what they've picked up in their own work and experience or future insight? Can I also add to that? Because I think it's also for Catherine, because one interesting comment came as, I mean, we should also may include caring for nature and carbon sequestration. So all these interesting activities within that iceberg model. So Catherine, perhaps you can start with Catherine, please. Thanks, Ash. That's exactly what I was going to go to <laughs> as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, something something that I've been hearing from, from many people as we've sort of seen the great resignation unfold is that sense that the kind of the pandemic prompted a real rethink of what a quality of life means and what a meaningful life is. Um, and so people being prompted to make some big choices about how they structure their lives in response to that and I think climate change and climate risk is another is another issue that is prompting that. You know, in fact, you know, it's that legendary thing of so many people um, buying properties in New Zealand to escape climate change impacts elsewhere. Um, but I've yeah, and I've and I I have friends actually who've who've moved moved back to New Zealand um, for exactly those reasons. So it kind of feels to me like it. It might actually be a true thing. <laughs> this is what people are doing. But you know, it's got those those massive impacts about um, what does a quality of life in a city look like when you know you look at the the average temperatures of a hot corridor in Sydney or Melbourne and what the projections are for what that's going to look like into the future. Um, it has massive implications for planning and and goes to the the point. Um, that you were making, Marcus, about the move to um, CNDs as opposed to CBDs, you know, the, the potential for urban, the centre of, of our urban environments to need some major uh, change to accommodate that in a time of, of climate impact, I think is, is massive. And it's so important to provide the spaces to enable that to happen and to support the kind of um, flexible working options that people are moving to, I think, as they as they think again about what a meaningful life is. Well, the, I agree with uh, everything that Catherine's just said there. The, 
The other thing that crosses my mind about the climate change implications is the reindustrialization of Australia in particular. It's quite breathtaking, the, the um, retooling that will need to be undertaken in order to equip ourselves with the kind of energy network to meet you know, the now legislated 43% uh, target. So that in itself is going to um, transform metropolitan and regional economies. And in a sense, it's almost back to the future. We might even be looking at a workforce, a paid workforce that looks more like uh, 1965 than it does today. Um, so uh, that will have its own implications for, for transport, um, freight. But in all of that, uh, I still think we will see this separation between uh, knowledge-based work and production work and this, the essential geographic forces at play will, will continue to assert themselves. Thank you for that. And, and certainly, I suppose that does remind us also when one talks about reindustrialization of the degree to which in the last three years, COVID has been such a disruptive influence on, on life, livelihood, well-being, as well as work and the nature of work and where it takes place. I'm, I'm just wondering from the panelists if anyone would like to comment on what they've seen in terms of how COVID has impacted on what, what work is, what work means, and what post-work might mean in that light. Um, <clears throat> so certainly what we're seeing in our experience is that people are looking for work to be more meaningful. They're looking for their lives to be more meaningful. Now that, of course, might be fact of the, the, the cohort that, that come to us, um, our, our employers that are prepared to acknowledge that within their workforce and provide room and space for that. But I think that, that, this, that this is key, and, and Catherine mentioned that it sits behind the the great resignation and it sits behind quietly quitting as well you know that we are all incredibly aware of climate change we are incredibly aware also of inclusion within the workplace and so you know when we talk about reducing work time but remaining um, focused on productivity we're looking at how can more of our workforce be included in a more what we would consider full-time work environment, i.e. an environment that pays them appropriately and they're not having to disengage with, with, with work because they don't have the capacity to work full-time um, as, as, as full-time is defined now. Um, and then also you know, this brings us around to the, the gender issue as well and that for the large part, um, it is women who opt out of time in the workplace to prepare um, and engage in work. And, you know, I'll, I'll say we've done a lot in the workplace, in, in our workplace and in our society to pull women up, but we're not doing enough to help men out of the workplace. And so, therefore, when we reduce work time and we make work time the thing to, reduction to be the thing that is honoured and respected in the workplace, we are actually empowering um, our men to go and say, I am also going to do this because I it's not going to impact on my ability to earn an income for the family and it's not going to impact on my, in, my ability to advance my career. And so these are the sort of questions. And this also applies into, um, into the, the disabled workspace, how we can, how we can uh, offer better opportunities there. 
you know, so I, you know, I leave you with the thought, you know, how would it be that if we worked Monday, Tuesday, and then Thursday, Friday, and give people Wednesdays off, how many more people can engage in the workplace, because they only have to find the capacity to work two days at a time. So I'll add that in. Great. Thank you for that, Charlotte. Um, Jim, can I bring you in at this point? Uh, Etienne, I, I think you're so right to ask how uh, the experience of the pandemic has changed our attitudes to work um, on both the demand and the supply sides of, of it, if you like. And um, I do want to uh, just uh, make a, a free advertisement for a paper that our center put out. It's called 10 Ways That COVID Must Change Work for Good. And uh, for good meant in both senses of the word, um, for better, but also permanently. Uh, and you can easily uh, find that on our site. And uh, some of the, I'd say, tectonic changes that, that I've been thinking about. Number one, I think the pandemic forced broader society to rethink and reevaluate what do we, how do we understand essential services and essential jobs that get done. And, you know, I know initially in the pandemic, people were very grateful to uh, medical staff and healthcare and first responders and so on, and rightly so. But uh, then we soon realized, you know, that there's a whole other set of jobs that gets done in our society that we often just totally take for granted. Uh, everything from cleaners to carers to delivery drivers uh, to grocery store clerks, you know, who saved us uh, during the lockdowns. We couldn't have survived without them. And I think that's an opening for us to, in a way, um, spark a rethinking about um, how all jobs are essential. And if, in fact, they were heroes to keep selling us groceries when they were risking their lives to be at work, um, then maybe we should treat them a bit better. Another uh, issue is um, from the perspective of people doing some of those often taken for granted jobs, the risks associated with working during the pandemic and even going to and from work during the pandemic, I think sparked a bit of a, a reassessment, uh, maybe building on what Charlotte was saying, re reassessment about where work fits into their broader life goals and um, how important you know work is and what they expect from work you know it was bad enough to have to you know take the bus uh, to a job in a store or a cafe for maybe three or four hours work at minimum wage and then take the bus home and that's a very unfair ungratifying unrewarding vocation but then if you throw in i could catch covid on the bus or i could catch covid from some customer who was you know spitting in my face suddenly you say, why the heck am I doing this? And uh, I detect um, an increase in sort of feistiness and expectations on the part of workers who uh, the experience of the COVID pandemic um, in a way sparked them to say, I don't, I don't want to put up with that kind of stuff anymore, even as the pandemic abates. And, you know, the pandemic isn't over. Um, but if and when it abates, uh, I think the, some of those expectations will be there. And it could be that the new um, kind of macroeconomic environment we've seen since the pandemic with unemployment rates very low in many countries, at least for now, we'll see how long it lasts. That could underwrite some bargaining power by those folks to say, um, no, I'm not just going to go back to that job. It is the, the employers who had the hardest time replacing staff after the pandemic are precisely the employers who offered the lousiest jobs in the first place. And that suggests that many of those people have said, I don't want to or need to do this anymore. And they've gone to work somewhere else. Uh, Catherine, would you like to come in at this point, please? Yeah, thanks. Um, and thanks, Jim. I was 
you know, I, I put up my hand because I wanted to talk about this question of privilege, which you pointed to so well. And I, I really hope you're right about the feistiness um, of workers, especially those workers who were really in a in a terrible, terrible situation during um, during the lockdowns in particular, um, and who continue to to have an extremely precarious existence um, in a way that I think, you know, you, you hear people on the radio talking about, oh yeah, in the pandemic as if it's in the past tense, which is um, worrying because it's really not. Um, and the effects, um, I'm, I feel the effects right now because I'm still in the COVID brain fog of recovery. You know, it's, um, yeah, it, the, the implications are massive. I was gonna say along with that, you know, this question of privilege, I think, um, one thing that hasn't come up in this conversation and I, I do want to raise as it's something that a lot of post-work theorists talk about is the universal basic income. So it's this idea, right, that we, this society that we live in, which um, devolves responsibility for livelihood and well-being down to the individual um, is, you know, it, in a way it's a kind of crazy idea. Um, I really like James Ferguson's take on it. He talks about the societies that we live in now being founded upon um, a millennia of experimentation and innovation. Um, we share in this common estate. We've inherited it, all of us, um, the good and the bad. Uh, and to continue to structure our society as if your capacity to survive must only be on your shoulders is to ignore that inheritance which is so vital and important um, and a universal basic income would be a way to recognize that common existence that we all share and we all contribute to um, and take away so many of the really worst stresses that the most vulnerable members of our society suffer from in a work context that's structured so unfairly. So yeah, so I wanted to, I'm curious about what the other panelists think about the universal basic income. It would be a massive shift in the kind of ideological foundations of um, many contemporary societies, but there are wonderful examples of experiments with it that have, have been really successful around the world. So um, mm. wanted to put that into the conversation. Yep, thank you very much for that, Catherine. And that certainly is something which resonates with my understanding in terms of diverse economies and the degree to which countries in Southern and North Africa, as well as South America, are experimenting with the UBI in the context of economies which will never be able to, in inverted commas, employ their entire workforce. But it be, would be interesting to hear if other people would like to pick up on this thread. Well, I felt that during the height of the pandemic here in Australia, we, we, we almost rehearsed a universal basic income. It wasn't quite universal, but we did underwrite incomes. Yeah. We seem to have eliminated homelessness overnight. Um, we did a lot of things that uh, the onus of proof is now on those who would say that they can't go on indefinitely. In many ways, it was an inspiring period. We did come to understand the nature of work and the people in our neighbourhoods who help sustain our well-being. I think we, <laughs> I think it was a, an amazingly important lesson. 
And I don't know, maybe I'm an optimist. I do feel that uh, those lessons are percolating away. I get the feeling that the sentiments that propelled a new federal government into power were linked back to those lessons. Um, and I can certainly see UBI, um, I mean, there's a strong economic case for it. Even conservative governments in the UK have, have promoted it. So I don't think it's something that would rise or fall on ideological grounds. I think the economic case is, is, is there. So I remain, I'm going to be optimistic about it. Is there an example of a city you know of that is actively transitioning to a CNB rather than a CBD? Um, yeah, I did see that question. And uh, oddly enough, I'm going to nominate Melbourne. Um, <laughs> Uh, because uh, born and raised here, I can remember when the CBD was exactly that, a central business district. You could shoot a cannon down the street after, you know, midday on a Saturday. If you want any proof of that, just have a look at the, um, the, the ACDC um, uh, track, long way to the top, which has the boys on the back of a flatbed truck going down Swanson Street. It was a wasteland. Um, now, the, the place, probably not because of the thesis that I put forward here today, that wasn't the, the force behind it, but for many decades now, there's been a big effort to make the central city more livable and, and indeed a place to live. A few accidental policy settings found their way through to that effect. For example, and, and people in the panel might, might regret this, but the University funding reforms of the 1980s meant that universities went chasing international students. That brought enormous numbers of international students into Victoria, made it one of our biggest industries. Um, and these students populated the central city, demonstrated that you could live successfully in the central city and hey, bingo, it became a place to live. But I'm thinking today that we need to, to really go to another level that instead of it just being a a blob of, of places where people live and work uh, without any particular planning structure. We do need to think of, of neighbourhoods within the CBD, make sure that they have childcare, make sure they have grocery stores, make sure that they have recreation areas, do give consideration to, to noise factors, um, make sure that there's sufficient housing for families and so forth. And so that's the next level we need to go. But the transformation in central Melbourne over the past 40 years is, is actually amazing. And uh, that's the best example I can come up with. Well, thank you for that, Marcus. Uh, Jason, can we bring you in here, please? Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I think too, you know, and, and, and Charlotte probably can speak to this as well, but I, I think too, when you look at these CBDs, that you're seeing that people are also finding that having an apartment in town versus a, a house in the suburbs uh, uh, means that you're doing less work on maintaining your property. You have the ability to lock up your apartment and go on a holiday for a month or two at a time and come back to it and not have to worry about all that stuff. I think that you know when you have a, a place in the CBD, you're gaining back some of the time that you've You've been giving to work or you know be able to to scrape some of that back i know that even personally in my life i've i've had a a, a little farmlet uh, i've had uh, houses in the suburbs and i've i've finally kind of live in a a, a smaller uh, apartment in the city and the beauty is that i, I can clean my whole apartment uh, uh, in an hour 
um, I don't do any yard work and I've got the whole weekend to myself after I've done that. So I do think it's about getting your time back as well. Perhaps I could uh, forward a question to uh, Catherine and Charlotte as well. So, I mean, Catherine, you talked about young people, you talked about your teenager children, and obviously they go through a lot of transitions when they start to grapple with gender identities as they grow up and their place in the world as new workforce. So what you, what, what is your thought on how we could actually train these, or I would say inform these young generations about the post-work conditions and how to go about that? And that relates to also Charlotte, because I mean, how these young people, I mean, we could normalize the idea of a four-day weeks, so reduced work to the, to the young generations, yep. I'll go quickly and leave the last word to you, Charlotte, because um, I really appreciate the, the four-day week idea of balance, which is so important. And I think that's something to really work with and um, in thinking about how we talk to young people. I mean, I'm so my centre is actually located in a faculty of education. So I've been very privileged to be spending a lot of time working quite closely with education academics, um, trainee teachers and teachers in schools. Um, and there are a lot of conversations happening about what schools are for and how we prepare our young people for the future. Um, the system that we have in place in Australia at the moment is very much focused on producing workers. <laughs> um, and I think the, the move now is very much um, to try and recapture the purpose of, of education institutions um, to prepare our young people for a rich life and a life in which they are empowered and have the tools and resilience to address some of the major change that we need to address in our world. Um, and I'm, I'm especially privileged to be involved in a, in a project that's using Indigenous ways of teaching and learning in schools to try and, and place at the foundation of education um, a sense of obligation to country and care for and love for country. So, um, and that so that that will happen alongside the sort of standard curriculum in schools, so that you have this foundation that your life is not just about um, what you can do with it in the workplace, but it's about that responsibility and obligation that you owe to your earth kin, that you owe to each other in your community, and that these things are just as important. Thank you, so I'm, I'm really excited by what I'm seeing happening at the moment in that space. It's really beautiful. Sorry. Yes, yeah, so, so I'll just say briefly, it's certainly that's um, very much reflected in, in what we're seeing um, in, in our, the work that we do. And, and, and I think that the young ones are coming out of education, being taught or into life, being taught that what they have learned now won't be relevant for any jobs that they will have in the future. And they um, need time to continue to, to participate in education throughout their lives and throughout their careers. And we need to have workplaces that actually afford them the time to be able to do that so they can feel that they are developing and growing. Catherine, I love that the, the, the journey where developing and growing isn't necessarily about just your work, but about being able to be you know, a more whole person and, and, and that side of things. Um, so I think that that's really, really important 
important to understand. But also, young people are already making the choice not to work as hard. Sorry, work as long. Um, they're quite happy to work hard. They just don't want to work as long. And there's research coming out of Oxford University that actually it suggests and I, we don't subscribe to this at all because we believe in full pay, but that actually people will forego income to work less. So it is something that the, the, the younger generation are already participating in, and we as their leaders and as their employers need to be aware that this is the journey they are already on, and we need to make sure we're up to, we, we are caught up. Thanks, Charlotte. Uh, the future of work is what we make it. Ash, and uh, I think that uh, we've heard so many great ideas for how to improve work and make it sustainable and gratifying and community-minded and, um, and beautiful. So uh, let's do that. It's fascinating, but obviously, I mean, as university teachers, there are so many ideas we can actually take to the classroom now. But yeah, so we need to end the session. So we have been a lot of questions around CBD. So that's kind of the highlight a theme perhaps for this session which we couldn't actually attend to but obviously i mean as work i mean i think i have learned something new as the definition of work i mean as charlotte was mentioning i mean that was quite powerful that we borrow people's lives i mean organizations borrow people's lives to the workforce so that's a new way to think about how we value and how we recognize what we do so obviously we need to end this session, but before we finish, I would like to sincerely thank to Professor Carl Gurdash of Monash Architecture and Design for this continuing support as part of the ACRN as well. I mean, we were having this initial brainstorming with Carl, and now as a result, we got this fantastic session. So thanks, Carl. Thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.